And uh, we're going to take a look at Psalm 51 tonight. We'll see. i got plans to go all the way to 54, but you know, best laid plans of mice and men. So as we take a look, Psalm 51, probably one of the most famous of the Psalms. Uh, This is a Psalm David wrote after uh, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. You remember the story? Uh, David had uh, cheated with another woman. He had slept with Bathsheba. She got pregnant. David wanted to uh, sweep it all under the rug, so he tried to bring her husband Uriah, who was not a Jew, he was a Hittite, uh, tried to bring Uriah to, to come and cover it all up, sleep with his wife, nobody will ever know, you know. And uh, that was, that was the, the, the effort that he gave. But Uriah wouldn't do it. He wouldn't sleep with his wife. He stayed in a tent outside even when he got him drunk. <clears throat> Uriah was more righteous drunk than David was sober. And so Uriah wouldn't do it because his, all the other guys in the army were still fighting him. So he's not going to do it. So David sends him back to Joab carrying his own death warrant. Uh, the note that he carried told Joab to put Uriah out front, uh, push hard up against the enemy, and then withdraw and leave Uriah uh, surrounded. And so they did so, and Uriah the Hittite died. David took Bathsheba as his wife, and he figured nobody was any of the wiser, except for God. So... God sent a prophet named Nathan to, to David. And he told David a story. He said, David, there's this horrible thing that's happened in your kingdom. This horrible thing has happened. This guy, he had one little ewe lamb. It was like his pet. It ate at his table with him. Uh, it was all he had in the whole world was this little ewe lamb. And his neighbor was a very wealthy man. Had many sheep, many lambs. Well, somebody came to visit the rich guy. And the rich guy decided that he didn't want to kill any of his lambs. So he went over to his neighbor's house, that pet, that little ewe lamb that was so important to him. And he took it by force, killed the ewe lamb, and fed it to his neighbor. David, what are we going to do about that? So David erupts with righteous indignation. (laughs) And he said, man, we're going to... That guy should die and pay four times for what he stole. And and as he's running on, Nathan the prophet says to David, You are that man. And the Bible tells us that David's heart was broke. And immediately he repents. It doesn't save him or spare him of the consequences that God brought in his life. It doesn't save him of the storm that comes through his family as a result of the choices he made. But it does save his relationship with God. God is a God who is always willing to redeem. When we come to the Lord in a relationship with him, I think nowadays, I know I've been guilty of it too, we we sell him so cheap. I'm Jesus. We sell them cheap. It's almost like we beg people to make a choice to to receive Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus is a king. And he is ready to sit on his throne. 
The Bible says that if we want salvation, he tells us two things. Repent and believe. And a lot of times we forget the first part. And we call people to believe and they'll make a profession of faith and they feel like they've got fire insurance or something. And, and that there's never anything that God wants to do in their life. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. We turn from sin to Jesus Christ. We turn from our old life or our old ways or whatever and we turn to Christ. And Christ, yeah, Christ does the work. Because the, the emphasis in a, in a uh, saved life is a changed life. Well, it's not overnight, but it changes. The direction changes, where we're going changes. And that's what happened to David. David's sitting on his throne thinking nobody knows about my sin. Boom, he's on his face. He's weeping. He's crying. And he writes the 51st Psalm that night. As he's heart's broken and he's, and he's so sorrowful for what he's done. And I'm sure David's sorry for the things that came into his life as a result. There were, there were issues that entered into his life. Uh, God's judgment came down and God said, the baby's not going to live. And God's judgment came down and said, the sword's never going to leave your family. And a lot of times we look at that, we... We, 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 we don't understand. We want to we lay, lay all responsibility for the circumstances in our life in God. And, and so I can make this as clear as I can. I believe God's sovereign and ultimately God's in control. But I also believe we make choices. And we put ourselves, we put ourselves in places because the choices we make. And God loves us enough to, to allow the things that need to happen in our life to correct us to happen. So the Bible tells us David laid on his face and he wept and he wept and he cried out to God and he fasted. And, and the whole time the baby was sick. He just cried out and cried out and just on the mercy of God, just in case maybe God would allow the child to live. But the Lord took the child. Do you remember what David said? David said, my baby can't come to me. But I will go to him. That there is the only place in the world where we have hope of reconciliation and redemption. Where all the broken pieces of our life come back together again. No matter how tore apart they are here, and they can be pretty frosted and tore up here. No matter how tore apart they are, the only place we have hope for reconciliation, for God, to, for Jesus to say as he does in Revelation, see I make all things new. The only place we have that hope is in him. It's just in him. This 51st Psalm kind of just lays out that whole heart. That whole attitude that says, man, it's... It's my relationship with you, Lord, that's the most important thing in my life. My relationship with you, that's what David's going to declare. That's what David's going to cry out for as he calls on the Lord for forgiveness. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. He, he asks for mercy. Look, trust me, none of us want justice. 
Uh, sometimes we want justice for somebody else, but when it comes right down to it, trust me, you don't want justice. Justice burns you. Justice, in, in, in a just world, none of us deserve anything. But it's because of God's grace, is extending His uh, salvific arm, His salvation toward us. The work that He's accomplished, that we grab a hold of. So whenever we come to God, we come based on His mercy. And when we come to God based in His mercy, the, the Lord has something else He wants to tell us. He wants to tell us to also remember to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's a, that's a real struggle in life. Because sometimes we want to hold on to our rights or um, uh, whatever. We want to take, we want to be God. But we are not able. We don't know right judgment. We don't know how to deal with situations apart from him in the right way. So we come to God based on mercy. Lord, give me mercy. Help me be merciful. The Lord tells us the ones who receive mercy are the ones who have been merciful. All of this is according to God's chesed, the loving kindness. Chesed is the Hebrew equivalent to agapeo, the agape, the self-sacrificing love of God in the Old Testament is called as loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. A transgression was a, a line in the sand you saw and stepped over anyway. Make sense? A, a lot of us have sinned that way before, right? We know something's not, we shouldn't do it and we do it anyway. The Bible calls that a transgression. And so he's asking for his transgressions to be blot out. But turn over in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> oh, we'll pick it up about verse 13, Colossians 2. It says this, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now when does that occur? When is it that God forgives all trespasses? Well, he forgives us. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us when we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does that mean to confess our sins? The word for confess is a Greek word, homologeo. It means to say the same thing as. To agree with God. To acknowledge our guilt before God. Or to repent. Say, I'm going to change my direction. So what does God do when we, when we make that proclamation? The Lord says, look, I, I will make you alive again from, from being dead in your trespasses and your guilt and your sin. How does he do it? Look at Colossians 2 verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. The handwritten requirements. The, the law that condemns. The law that shows us our guilt. Having wiped out the requirements that were against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way and done what? Nailed it to the cross. So Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 lay out for us that, that 
It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that God does, does the work of salvation in our life. He brings the ability to forgive our sins. Why? Not because God is overlooking them all and choosing not to see them, but because God poured out His righteous wrath on His own Son so that His Son could give to us His righteousness so that we might be able to stand beneath Him, covered in His blood because of His sacrifice. And that's what what David is crying out for. Look, blot out my transgression. Erase the charges. David's looking forward to the cross. He's looking forward to the hope of Messiah, the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there would come one one day who would crush the head of the serpent. Messiah who would deliver his people, deliver their people from their sins. Isn't that what Jesus told Mary when he said, you're going to have a child and you will call his name Jesus? Why? Because he will save his people from what? From their sins. Not going to save them from the Romans. Not going to save them from a hard life. Not going to save them from difficulties. He's going to save them from their sin. From their sin. Their, their, their struggle with sin. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The, the picture is my sin is clinging to me like dirt in laundry. And so he uses that description. Wash me. Wash me, scrub it off, get it off of me, it's clinging to me. We see a a very similar picture, don't we? In in the final evening, Jesus is gathered together with his disciples. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. The devil is placing into the heart of Judas the desire to betray Jesus. And Jesus, while they're going about talking and arguing about who's the greatest, walks over, takes off his, his robe, puts on a towel grabs a basin of water and does what? Washes their feet. What is he picturing for them? Peter says, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. There's no way I'm going to let you wash my feet. What did Jesus say? If I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. I have to wash you. I, I have to cleanse you. So Peter says, well, then wash all of me. Jesus says, you, you don't need Holy wash, you've been washed. You're sanctified by the word of truth, according to John chapter 17. He builds on that idea a little bit later. But he says, but now, just just walking through the day, your feet are dirty. Everything's not dirty, I just need to wash your feet. The sanctifying work, the cleansing work of Christ in the life of a believer is continuous, right? That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. Is 1 John 1, 9 a once and done deal? We, We confess our sins, that's it, we never have to do it again. We never have to tell the Lord we're sorry or repent of our behavior. No, it's a lifestyle, isn't it? Living a life of confession. Living a life that says, Lord, forgive me for my failures. Strengthen me. Help me to walk. All that is is the picture of Christ washing your feet. He's not saving you over and over again. He's just washing your feet. He's just washing your feet. Just like David's asking, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression. And that phrasing he's saying, look, I'm totally aware of my sinfulness. There's no excuses in this psalm. Oftentimes I I would tell my kids when they would 
begin to confess some horrible evil that they had done that me and Kathy already knew about, but but we're but we're talking to them about, and as we're as we're talking to them, um, we would tell them, look, when you start to confess and then you finish your confession with the word but you erase everything that went before it well yeah i did that but there's no but it stops with i did that i did that this is my so david is saying look i wholly i utterly i completely acknowledge my transgression my sinfulness i'm a guilty man when we come to salvation that's a necessary step if that step's never occurred in your life where you come before God saying, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need to turn from my life and come to you. Then, then we've never come to him. We have a form of easy believism, but we don't have the reality of repentance and salvation. He says in, in this next part of verse 3, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now just think about all the people David had affected. His other wives. His children. What about Uriah? I mean, he kind of gets the raw end of the deal. Uriah is not just some nobody. Uriah was one of the mighty men of David. He'd been with David since the days in the caves. He'd been with David in, in the crazy battles that David won. He was in the first group of mighty men. That, I mean, that's not just some slouch. He, him and David were friends from the old days, from the old neighborhood. But here David says to the Lord, it's you. My offense is to you, Lord. It's you whom I have offended. It's you who I have offended. Sin before. My sin always before me. I've done this evil. He's, he's recognizing that, that what he has done is a greater offense to God than anybody else. And I don't think we see sin that way. I think we see sin, oh, it's a little thing, what's the big deal? That's just another stripe on the back of Christ. Just another drop of blood. And we're guilty of doing what Hebrews 10 says and trampling the blood of Christ and treating the blood of Christ like it's a common thing. Like, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about the blood of Jesus? I mean, what's, it's just a little sin. But there's no such thing for God. That little sin had an infinite cost. And David had that, that right view. He didn't see his sin as something small. He didn't see his sin as something insignificant. He saw it as a great offense to God. And so he declares to God not only his guilt, but then he says, uh, so that you might be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's saying, whatever you do, God, your judgments are right. I'm guilty. I am that man. I'm guilty. Then in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So you have here in Psalm 51 the concept of original sin. No one is born on earth without it. Everybody comes to earth in sin. 
from the from the beginning, from the get-go. What we get from Adam, according to the book of Romans, we inherit that sin nature. That's why Jesus was born of a woman, not born of a man. The sin nature was passed as judgment from Adam to his sons, to his daughters, to every offspring afterwards. The Bible tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam did what? He transgressed. What does that mean? That means Eve was fooled, and Adam knew what he was doing. Adam made a choice. And that choice brings about original sin. And that original sin means every person born is born in it. And needs to be redeemed. And so David is saying, look, I, I was born in sin. I am a depraved person. The image of God is defaced. The Bible says that every person, every man, woman, child, anyone ever born is born in the image of God, right? Imageo Deo, the image of God. Everyone's born in the image of God, but the image, because of sin, is defaced. It's not right until we come to a relationship with Christ. And at that point, when the Holy Spirit enters into our life of salvation, we're able to shine forth the reflection of Jesus. Prior to that, we're not able to do it. We are created in the image, but we're not able to walk in that image that God is calling us to. So, he's saying, I, I, I was born in sin. Behold, he said, but you desire truth in my inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. So he's saying, look, I, I know I'm born in sin, but God, what you want is truth on the on the innermost parts, in my most intimate heart in my heart of hearts you desire truth so that i can be truthful internally we can pretend and do our best to look good on the outside right the ten commandments aren't that aren't that rugged for us to keep except for the ones that you can't pretend to do on the outside like thou shalt not covet I could look at you all day long and never know you're coveting, right? You might, you might want Mark's motorcycle that's parked out here in front of the, in front of the windows. You might want somebody's new car. You might want somebody else's house. You may want somebody else's wife. You may want somebody else's husband. But that sin can't be seen. It's inside of you. And we can pretend on the outside everything's good, and I'm I got a great walk, and it's all good. But the problem is God desires truth on the inside. He doesn't want us to be self-deceived, deceive ourselves by saying, oh yeah, I got, this, I got this all down. He wants truth. He wants wisdom in our heart of hearts. He wants that spirit moving and working in us so that we can be truthful. And if we're truthful, then we come back to the beginning. We ask God for mercy and forgiveness, and God gives it. All the time. You, you will not find a person in this book who asked God for forgiveness, and God said no. You find lots of guys who never asked for forgiveness, but you won't find guys who asked and didn't get it. So we, 
We want to have that truthfulness inside. And then he has this phrase, a pretty incredible phrase in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's kind of a, an incredible little verse because of what it is referencing. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, I'm sure many of you love to spend a lot of time reading the book of Leviticus. I don't know if you do, but my favorite chapter in Leviticus happens to be Leviticus 14. And in Leviticus 14, this is what he's referencing when he says, purge me with hyssop. In Leviticus 14, you have this this interesting um, sacrifice called for, for the cleansing of the lepers. Maybe you guys have heard me talk about it before. In the Old Testament, there was an idea of what to do whenever a leper was cleansed. The downside is, it never happened. So the priest would always say, well look, we're supposed to do Leviticus 14 in case a leper's cleansed. But it almost never happens. And the, the, the few examples we have in scripture were Gentiles. So they didn't go back to the, to the temple or the tabernacle to, to say, hey, I've been cleansed, I need to go through this ceremony. So we have Leviticus 14 sitting there for, for hundreds of years, thousands of years, priests never use it and then jesus comes on the scene and in one day how many guys did he send to the temple 10 lepers right 10 lepers go to the temple and show yourself to the priest you don't think that go off like an alarm in a priest's head what 10 lepers 10 10 what do you mean 10 lepers i gotta look that up where's my scroll of leviticus what are we supposed to do again and the whole thing in leviticus 14 is a picture Of the sacrifice of Christ. Take a look at it. In Leviticus chapter 14. Just look at verse 1. It said. So the Lord spoke to Moses and said. This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. Now anytime we look at leprosy in the Bible. Leprosy in typology is a picture of sin. That's why it it covered their whole body. It was incurable. There was no way to get out of it. Why? Because there's no way for you to be cleansed from your sin. Apart from God cleansing you. And so you have the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. It's crazy that that day of his cleansing was never coming. When were they ever going to use it? He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp. So they'd come to the priest, show themselves to the priest, look at him, take him outside. So he takes him outside of the camp and the priest will examine him. And indeed, if the leprosy uh, is healed in the leper... Then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. Remember, purge me with hyssop, wash me, and I will be clean. It's interesting. Two birds, living and clean, cedar wood, why? Scarlet. And hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds will be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. I just want you to see the picture. They're going to take a bird that lives where? In the heavens. And they're going to take that bird and they're going to put it in a clay pot. What's a clay pot symbolize? Flesh. The, a, a creature from the heavens putting on flesh 
over running water, living water. If any of you thirst, let him come unto me, and I will give him what? Living water to drink. And so put this bird from the heavens in a clay pot. You and I, we have this treasure in what? Earthen vessels, right? Clay pots. Put the bird in a clay pot. It's a picture of the heavenly putting on flesh over living water and kill it. It's a picture of Jesus Christ coming, incarnate, in flesh, and dying. That he is the the sacrifice for the sins of mankind. But then look, he goes on. Take this bird. Take the living bird. Take it. The cedar wood, the scarlet, and the hyssop. And dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. So what's the cedar wood? What's the cross? What's the scarlet? The scarlet thread of redemption. What did they do with it all? They took the cedar wood. They took the scarlet. And they tied the hyssop to the cedar wood. So the, 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 the hyssop is like a, a little branch. Think of it like tearing a branch off a sage, a a pliable branch of sage, tying that to a cedar plank so it looks almost like a paintbrush, dipping that into the blood. So you have the cross, the scarlet thread of redemption. Remember when we saw Rahab, the harlot, what did she put out her window to signify that she had faith that, that God would pass over her house and that those in her house would be saved. He had her place out a scarlet thread. That scarlet thread symbolized her faith in the power of the blood, if you will. And the power of the blood so that God would pass over. The scarlet thread of redemption. You see it over and over again in typology. In the colors of the things that are used within the temple. So you have this scarlet thread. The wood symbolizing the cross. You dip them. Uh, and the living bird in the blood, uh, that was uh, the bird that was killed over the running water, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him. Who's getting sprinkled with the blood of the bird? The leper. The blood of the bird, or the blood of the sacrifice, is sprinkled seven times on him who is to be cleansed from his leprosy, and he shall pronounce him clean. And then you will take the living bird and set it free. Loose the living bird. So what's the living bird do? Flies away. What does that symbolize? We have Christ coming from heaven, putting on flesh, dying for the sins of men, the blood being applied to the leper to indicate that he is now cleansed from his sin. And then the bird, the other bird, flies back to the heavens. The ascension of Christ after the sacrifice, the resurrection, all those things pictured. They never did this until the time of Christ. Until Jesus was walking through Jerusalem and then they start doing it over and over and over and over. Ten times in one day. Doesn't that begin to signify for you something is happening, something radical has changed Then it says, He who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off his hair, 
wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp and stay outside the tent seven days. And after seven days, on the eighth day, he does it again. All these things spoken of in Leviticus chapter 14 is what David's pointing to when he says, Purge me with hyssop. Dip the hyssop in the blood and make me clean. Cleanse me from the leprosy of my sin. Forgive me by the blood of the sacrifice. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And make me to hear joy and gladness. So that the bones you have broken may rejoice. When we look at it, it's important to see. He's he's saying, you got to make me hear joy and gladness. Because there are times in our life when we're going through stuff, it's kind of hard to hear joy and gladness. Yes or no? Times when we're going through trials or troubles or whatever things are going on. I remember times in, in Kathy and my life where I wasn't sure we were going to stop crying at some points. So we cry out to God, make me to hear joy and gladness. You got to work that work in my heart. You got to work that work in my life. For what purpose? So that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Now, David was a shepherd, right? He understood the concept. You had a little lamb that just wouldn't listen. A sheep that was constantly wandering away. The shepherd would take that sheep and break its legs. And then he would take that sheep and bind up its legs... And carry it on his shoulders until it healed. And as he carried it on his shoulders, you know what that sheep learned? That sheep learned, I was prone to wander, I was always leaving, but when I stay close to the shepherd, he gives me something to drink. He feeds me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He's working in my life. And so, while healing was taking place, what that sheep learn was the safest place to be was right next to the shepherd and by the time he was healed he understood and the problem was solved and this is what david's alluding to right now in david's life when he's writing this he feels broken his family's in turmoil his child is on death's door He says, you got to make me to hear joy and gladness so that the bones you have broken will rejoice. I need you, God, to to, to help me learn the lesson that you're teaching me so that I'm not coming back to this place. And then he asked him, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. What's the scripture tell us? How far does he remove our sins from us? Far as east is from west. That's a long ways, right? How long can I go east? I can go east forever. I can go west forever. East and west don't meet. That's why God didn't say north and south. What happens if I go north? I go over the top of the pole, and then what am I doing? Oh, I'm going south. So north and south meet. East and west don't. So he says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I have removed your sin from me. This is what he's asking me. As far as the east is from the west, Lord, remove my sin. And then in verse 10, he gets down to the need in his prayer. Create in me a clean heart. Make me whole. 
I love that, that phrase in Isaiah that spots, a lot of people misuse it. You guys have all heard it, right? Um, by his stripes, we are healed. And so a lot of people use that, you know, by the stripes of Christ, we can receive healing. But that's really not what it says. What it says is, by his stripes, we are made whole, complete. He reunites us with him. That's what David's asking for here. Create in me a clean heart. Make me whole. I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm a mess. I need you to make me whole. So he's asking him. He's not only asking for forgiveness. He's not only asking God to to be merciful upon him. But then he's asking God, you make me whole. Make me complete. Create in me a clean heart. And renew a steadfast spirit, a spirit that, that wants to walk with you, that I, that, that I, that I want to be with you. Because I wanted to be with you. David's life was one after God's own heart, following the Lord wherever he went. But then, you know, he got a little complacent. He got a little tired of, of doing what, what he was doing before. And, and the next thing he knows, he was way off track. So he says, Lord, make my heart whole again and give me the strength I need to walk with you every day. Not most days, every day. Look, God don't want your spare time. You probably don't have a lot of that anyway. God wants it all. And if we don't want to give it all, then save it. Do something else with it. Live, eat, drink, and be merry. Because there's no salvation in part-time. No salvation in, in just giving them a piece of your heart. He wants it all. Every piece, every part, every dream, every desire. He wants it all. The Bible says to love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? Your whole heart, right? How much of your mind? All your mind. How much of your emotions? How much of your strength? Yeah, he wants it all. The Lord wants it all. So he can take it away from you and and make you miserable, right? <laughs> That's what we think sometimes. God wants to God wants me to give everything to him so so that I can be miserable. No, but let me tell you this. If you don't give everything to him, you'll be miserable. And you'll blame it on him. You'll say, oh, see, I'm trying to give it all, but I'm miserable. Well, there is no try. I like Yoda. There is no try. There is only do. There is do or do not. No try. You surrender it all. That's why I'm not a big fan of the concept of make a commitment. Because a commitment sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm, I can be partially committed. I can be a little bit committed. I'm a little committed today. I'm not so committed tomorrow. A better phrase is surrendered. There's no such thing as a little surrendered. If you're surrendered, especially in battle, if you're surrendered, then, well, you're surrendered. It's gone. It's over. And that's what God's looking for from us. And this is what David is asking for from God. He's saying, Lord, make me whole. Give me the strength to walk with you. In verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had seen that exact same thing happen to Saul. 
Saul had sinned. God had told Saul to do something. Saul didn't do it. God took his Holy Spirit away from him. In the Old Testament, that was not wholly uncommon. The Holy Spirit would come on the believer uh, to empower him for service. And after service, the Holy Spirit would depart. It was not an eternal gift until the time of Christ. And Christ said, it is good for you that I go away. That's kind of a hard concept, right? Can you imagine that it's better for you now than if Jesus was sitting right beside you? That's what Jesus said. It's better for you that I go. Because then the Comforter will come. You'll have the Holy Spirit. And that's the part that we really need. So David's saying, don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I want you more than I want anything else. If, if, if anything else goes in there, I just, I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to beat a dead horse, but if anything else goes in that spot, that's, that's not a surrendered heart. If my grandkids are in that spot, it's not a surrendered heart. I cannot be the grandfather I need to be if God's not first in my life. If my wife's in that spot, that's not right. I can't be the husband I need to be if God's not in that spot. I can't be the father I need to be. I can't be the son I need to be. I can't, none of my earthly relationships will ever be what they could be if I'm totally surrendered to Christ. See, when we're totally surrendered, all those other relationships start to make sense. But if we're not, they won't. They won't. I, I will live in, in, some other, in some other place, in some other way, where that power of God is not moving and working through my life. Verse 12, he says, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Help me remember. Help me hold on to the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. So he's saying, look, I need you to keep me. I need you to hold me up. And Paul said the same thing. I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him until that day. What's, what's Paul saying? I know I have put my faith in Jesus Christ for my salvation. And if my salvation depends on me, I'm not going to make it. But if my salvation depends on him, I will. That's what Paul's saying. So what's that mean? I mean my part, I surrender. I grab onto him with everything that's in me. I live a life of confession. Not pretending that I don't need it. I got to confess every day. Uh, and I'm, I'm constantly putting myself, Lord, I need you. I need you to hold me up. I need you to guide me. I need you to show me the way that I'm supposed to walk. I need you for everything. Reliance. Totally reliant on him. In verse 13, this is what happens. In the life of a believer whose sins have been forgiven. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Look, God will always use our failures, our struggles, our brokenness to minister to somebody else. All the time. That's how he heals us. That's how he heals us. So there's... You remember I told you guys the story of the, of the dad who ran over his baby. You guys remember? We've talked about it before. This father who ran over his baby. 
and uh, his his uh, baby girl died and went to heaven. And a week later, uh, a, f- a kid played football for me, um, got in a motorcycle accident, and he died. You remember that's the dad I told you lifted his hands to heaven and praised God for the for the time he had had with his son. And part of the way God brought healing into the lives of those involved is those two families got together and were able to share each other's pain, struggle, victory that Christ is able to give. And when we do that, God heals. He starts to heal us. He doesn't use your greatest victory. He uses your defeat. People have spent more time talking about the failure of David than they ever spent talking about David and Goliath. It's the failure that God uses. And David says, because you've forgiven me, I'm going to teach other people not to do what I've done. I'm going to express to other people not to walk down this road, not to follow me uh, on the path that I had chosen. And so that's what David is, is, is laying out for him. Look, I'm going to use the, my own experience to help others. That's always the way of someone that's been forgiven. They want to help someone else not go down that path. Verse 14, he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. David's guilty of murder. So what did the law require? If you shed man's blood by man, your blood shall be shed. So he's guilty. God knows he's guilty. What's the requirement? Eye for an eye. Life for life. And so that the David is saying to the Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from that. Don't, don't, uh, spare me from that punishment. Did God spare him? Yeah, David didn't. He didn't die. He wasn't put to death. That's what he deserved, but that's why we call it God's grace and mercy, right? God extends that mercy. The God of my salvation, his tongue will sing aloud of his righteousness. And here he is. For thousands of years, people have been uh, sharing the 51st Psalm. O Lord, he says, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth praise. So he's asking him, help me. He's so filled with shame, it's hard for him to express praise. He's so filled with guilt, it's hard for him to, to glorify the Lord. So what's he doing? He's not pretending it doesn't exist. He's not pretending it doesn't hurt or he's not struggling. He just says, Lord, help me. Just like that, that father did with his child. And Jesus said to him, if you believe, then he can be made well. And the father said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's knowing where to go for help. Where do you go for help? We got to go to the Lord. Turn our eyes to Jesus and receive the help that he's offering from us. He says in verse 16, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. And you 
do not delight in burnt offerings. What he's saying is it's not, it's not this without that. God wants that right heart. What's he looking for? Verse 17. In the sacrifices. In the sacrifice. Even the sacrifice that God called for. If you don't have the heart of verse 17, then God doesn't want the sacrifice. Malachi is all about the people bringing sacrifices God didn't want. God said, why are you bringing me these sacrifices? I don't want them. Your heart is so far from me. What's the point of doing this? This is a picture of the coming of Messiah, but you have no faith or, or look for it. You're just going through the motions. And that's what he's talking about here. What does he want? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. That's a broken heart and a sorrowful heart. A repentant heart. A heart that wants to change direction. These, O God, you will not despise. There are a lot of times God hated the sacrifices of the children of Israel. But he never hated their broken heart or their repenting heart. Or their their heart that was turning back to him. In fact, in Jeremiah 29, 11, we all remember the verse, right? I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And we, we know that that verse is spoken to the children of Israel who are being put in chains and taken to slavery. So the picture's not a sunny day. The picture's a drag. I've lost my whole family. I've lost everything. Now I'm wrapped up in chains, being dragged into slavery. And God says... I know what I'm doing in your life. Trust me. I'm going to work it for good. And then he goes on in verse 12 and 13 to say, And when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. In other words, when your heart is broken and contrite and wants to turn to the Lord, then God's right there ready to scoop you up, ready to to welcome you back into the family of God. Verse 18, so do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bowls on your altar. So he's saying, look, do good in your good pleasure. God Be a blessing to Zion, to Jerusalem. Make her secure. Protect Jerusalem. Protect the city. The Bible tells us that from David's sin, God said, you've caused the nations to blaspheme. There's a lot of of fallout that came from the surrounding nations. So now David turns his eyes toward the nation. God, protect the nation. Because if you protect the nation and as you watch over the nation, then you will be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous. The hearts are turned. Things are going to change. We're going to get on track. That's the 51st Psalm. I want to be on track with you, God. I want to be in the place you want me to be in. I want your forgiveness. I want your renewal. I want your strength. All of those things David's crying out for. And all of those things were pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices that God's willing to do. So David understood. He knew. He knew his word. He knew If I come to you this way, with a broken heart, then you'll forgive. You'll move. You'll do that perfect work. 
And that's the same work God's still doing today. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.